I feel like we should have a theme song or something. Can you sing? <laughs> Welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast. This is a podcast from Brandon University's Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares. Every episode, we connect with a researcher and a community member around a topic of interest. We want to model how research connects with the broader community and highlight the knowledge that both researchers and community members bring to the table. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new and improved version of our podcast. We would like to acknowledge the Manitoba Teachers of Society for their support. With their encouragement, we've made the decision to do a few renovations to our original podcast. So if you're a regular listener, you will notice that we have a new name and a new logo. But the same enthusiasm for seeking out important topics and knowledgeable researchers and professionals to share their perspectives and experiences. Today's show is the first episode that will be published as a Leaning In and Speaking Out podcast. Should we tell them about the party, Jackie? Yes! <laughs> okay, so later this month, we've planned an official launch party for the Leaning In and Speaking Out podcast. And we want to invite all of you to join us for a live recording of the show. The topic will be on revitalizing Indigenous languages and we will record live on Zoom and then publish the conversation as a video podcast on our site. I'm really excited about the launch party, Michelle. What about you? Of course, I'm excited. Yes. So in addition to the great guests and deep conversation, there's going to be prizes and games, right? Oh, definitely. Well, prizes, yes. Are we doing games? <laughs> I think we should do games too. All right. I like games. Okay. So before we go on to today's show, maybe you could tell everyone where they can find information about the launch party. Right. So if you follow us on social media, you can find some information there. If you don't follow us on social media, you should go look us up. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So you can find us there and find some information about the party there. Or you can just send me an email. My email is lamm. There's no B in lamb. It's just L-A-M. M at brandedu.ca. Send me an email and just say you want to come to the launch party and I'll send you the Zoom link so you can join us. Okay, thanks. Um, I think it's going to be a great time and I hope that lots of people come to join us. So let's get on to today's show. Um, today we're talking about building equitable and inclusive environments in schools. Our guests are Dr. Nicholas Ingefuk, a researcher from the University of Ottawa, and Catherine McFarlane, the principal at Prairie Hope High School here in Brandon. And she's a recent graduate from the Master of Education program at Brandon University. Michelle, before we begin our conversation with Nicholas and Catherine, I'm hoping that you'll talk a little bit about the study that you have recently completed about racism. Racism is definitely one of the obstacles that we encounter when we set out to build more equitable and inclusive environments. So tell us a little bit about your study and what you've learned that might set the tone for our discussion today. 
Yeah, so I did a case study here in Brandon where I ran focus groups and did interviews with educators and community leaders and newcomers and community members asking questions about what it's like to immigrate here in Brandon and what kind of welcome newcomers receive when they come. And one of the biggest things that came out of this study was that there's a huge gap between what the white long-term residents of Brandon think that they are communicating and what newcomers experience on the other side. So since you and I are both white long-term residents of, well, can we say long-term in Brandon? We could say long-term in rural Canada. We probably err on the side of thinking that we're being hospitable or helpful or welcoming, but sometimes those good intentions are still built on stereotyped ideas of what people need or want. And that was something that was really challenged in this study. So do you want an example? Yeah, please. That would be great. So one of the things that came up a lot was the issue of names. Uh, white people in the study felt that asking people how to pronounce their name or practicing the pronunciation or, you know, what name do you prefer I call you? Because sometimes people have English names and names from their own country's language. Um, asking those kinds of questions, white people felt that was a sign of respect. Um, the newcomers in the study felt that it was putting them on the spot and made them feel really uncomfortable or awkward. So that's a pretty practical example of that kind of gap that I mentioned, that difference between intentions on one side and the felt impact on the other. I really appreciate about your study that it pushes me to recognize some of the barriers that we face in our own communities and some of the barriers that I might even bring to the community. Yeah. Um, you know, it pushes me to look inward, I think. And I think that's an important first step towards uh, building more equitable environments. I think we'll find that my knowledge of both Nicholas and Catherine is that they're both so committed to building welcoming and inclusive spaces. And I think this is going to be a great conversation. I think so too. Jackie, one of the things I appreciate about you is that you're really humble in your learning of all of this. So you're very quick to acknowledge that you don't know it all and you're eager to learn. And, and I like that phrase of when we know better, we do better. And uh, so I, I like what you just said, that this challenges you. And I feel the same way. I feel constantly challenged by not just that study, but I'm sure even this conversation coming up will be challenging and in a good way, helping me to grow. So let's get started. Today, I think our conversation is going to focus around building inclusive environments in schools, um, looking at how we can uh, be more equitable and um, work with the people in our schools to develop empathy and understanding. Um, and so, I am going to just go around from person to person and have you introduce yourself and talk about, um, you know, how you connect to that topic. So Nick, let's start with you. Hey, well, thanks first. Thanks for having me here today. It's fun to see you all and to talk to you all. And uh, so I'm really excited. Uh, my name is Nicholas Singlefuck. I'm uh, at the University of Ottawa. It's on the unceded and unsurrendered uh, ancestral territories of the Algonquin people. And uh, I've been here with my family for 15 years living uh, in the, along the shores of the Kitchissippi. Uh, my work uh, really since the start of grad school has been to 
question um, some of the assumptions that I've had as a, a former high school teacher and then uh, as a grad student and then transitioning to professor and, and curriculum theorist and educational researcher in general. And of course now as a, a faculty of education uh, administrator. So I'm vice dean of the grad studies right now. And prior to that, I was the former director of our teacher ed program and our indigenous teacher ed program. Well, hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Catherine McFarland and I am the acting principal at Prairie Hope High School, which is an alt ed high school in the Brandon School Division. And I've been a part of the Brandon School Division for, this is my 28th year now. I was an early years teacher for many years and then a resource teacher. And three years ago, I moved into a role of school leadership as a vice principal of a school here in Brandon. And this is my first year as acting principal. And I would say that my passion for inclusion runs deep to jobs that I had before I even went to university. Um, just wanting to ensure that everybody has a place where they feel heard and valued and welcomed. And that's been my philosophy as a classroom teacher and continues to be a passion as a school leader. I think people know me from the podcast, but uh, my name's Michelle Lamb. I'm the director of BU CARES. CARES is the Center for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, and I'm the co-host of the podcast. And I'm Jackie Kirk, and I am in the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration at the University, or Brandon University, and I am the other co-host of the podcast. Um, and excited about having this discussion with you today. Um, I, you know, I know everybody, that's the one comfort that I have. And um, I know that you all have great perspectives. So I'm really looking forward at getting started. Um, so the first conversation that we want to have is around how do we disrupt status quo? Like the status quo is a pretty stable um, way of being lots of times. And how do we get beyond that? Um, and how do you do that without de deepening the division between the um, powerful and the marginalized? I think that it's really important that we challenge ourselves to have conversations around that idea that once we know better, we do better. And I think that um, in one of the challenges in school leadership, I think, is to nudge people in those conversations beyond just saying, oh, we're an inclusive environment or everybody's really welcome here. We value everybody into saying, how do we show that in our practices and really having deep conversations about what is it that we do here to show people that they are seen and that they are heard and that they are valued? And how long does it take from the time you walk in our school doors before you hear language that is reflective of your values and that you feel safe to um, express your identity in our space. So I think those are deeper conversations than just saying, oh yeah, we've got an inclusive environment here. Everybody's welcome. We need to challenge ourselves to align that with our practices. Do you wanna tell us a little bit about how you've done that in your school? I think that um, we've had those conversations where we've talked about our school environment from different perspectives. And I think that that challenges people. You know, when you, when you don't just say, oh, okay, we're inclusive. You say, if I am a part of the LGBTQ plus community and I walk in our doors and I look around and I listen, what do I see and what do I hear? 
that says, I'm safe to identify here. And if I'm part of the indigenous community, how do I know that my culture is recognized, acknowledged and valued, and that the people who work in our school are actively engaging in uh, truth and reconciliation here in our space. And when we have those conversations and we try to take the perspective of different folks in our community, then I think the conversation becomes much richer. So we've been doing that over a series of workshops within our staff meetings and conversations that we have as part of our professional development so that we're always nudging that to figure out where can we do our work and, and where do we need to continue to grow? Well, I, was, I was just going to follow up. I mean, and that's, it's a really important question. And in terms of, of my own lived experiences, uh, you know, being a first generation immigrant to Canada, we, we lived in Scarborough, Toronto for a uh, time. Uh, this is prior to me starting school. But uh, our family moved up to Caps Casing, a, a rural logging town in northern Ontario. Um, it, it, you know, in many ways, it, it represented the two solitudes in Canada where there was a large, frank, primarily francophone community and, and a smaller anglophone community. But historically, the anglophone community had been part of kind of the economic elite uh, for the most part for the earlier part of, of, of Caps Casing. And uh, no, no, no recognition other than kind of stereotyping in derogatory ways, in violent ways, uh, local First Nations communities. So, I mean, growing up and going to school in, in the 1970s, my, my parents put us in the Francophone Catholic schooling system, even though, you know, we were Anglophone and Protestant. And being racialized uh, as being Chinese and with last name Ingefuk, it wasn't really easy at times in the schoolyard in terms of doing that, but it also had the privilege, economic privilege of my, my father. So, but also in terms of that story there, just troubling it as being a first generation immigrant to Canada, this, as the story goes, we come here to kind of work hard and make a better life for ourselves, um, but not recognizing how others lives, say for example, First Nations peoples and communities of Caps Casing were erased from the school curriculum. So I was very ignorant, even though I experienced different forms of racisms within the schooling system as a structure. I had amazing teachers but there were moments of and incidences of racisms there that I did not take into consideration in the ways in which uh, those lived experiences, my privileged lived experience in those ways also excluded others. So trying to, for me, and think of the schools, think of students, how they come with these different backgrounds and different stories to the school and trying to disrupt those in ways. And I don't necessarily know if I'd use the term disrupt per se, but to become more aware of that other people have different stories and they bring different stories to the school community. So that was part of it. And then uh, it wasn't really, like I said, I was really ignorant. Like I didn't think about that at growing up. I didn't think about that as a teacher doing my teacher education in Australia. I didn't think about those privileges and, and the ways in which we're talking about uh, systemic exclusions today or systemic racism. And it wasn't really until grad school. So, I mean, 20 something years before for me, in terms of my own professional learning as a professional educator, starting to question those, even though I had experienced moments of racism or even witnessed my dad, for example, in Florida, being turned away from hotels because of the color of his skin. So you can be on both ends in many ways to kind of experience uh, systematic racisms and need some disrupting in oneself, even though you're living those kind of experiences as well. So, and that continues transitioning to grad school and the kind of research I did. So it wasn't kind of right from the get-go. I needed a lot of disruption over the course of my career to get to where I'm at. So 
that, that would be my response to that first question. I, I think that's a really good place to begin. And I like the idea that we need to reflect on our own assumptions and start to examine those and question those. This is making me think of an article I read not too long ago, and it was from a not-for-profit group that was starting to grapple with race. And um, I looked at the board of the not-for-profit and it's all white men, literally, like that's how it is. And uh, I read the article and there were lots of good things in the article, lots of good points, but it made me feel, after reading it, it made me feel kind of yucky. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was that was a little disturbing about it. And after thinking about it for a while, I think it was that all of the onus in that article or all of the risk was on, the, the conversation was between um, two employees from that organization, uh, one a racial minority and the other a white employee. And this idea of having an honest conversation about race, but all of the onus was on the racialized person to explain their experience or explain um, why racism exists and to kind of justify their own experiences. And I think that's where that sort of yucky feeling came from. I need a better word than yucky, but that, that's how I felt after I read it. And it was like, is this really where we're at, where people are feeling like they need to put themselves out on a limb just to explain their own experiences? And so it really made me feel a little uncomfortable. But I think going back to your question mm -hmm. about disrupting the status quo and how to do it, in a, in a good way, I don't think that's a good way to sort of put put all the onus on the person of color, or on the indigenous person, or as Catherine said, on the LGBTQ plus person. We need, we need to find better ways to do it that doesn't put all the risk on a person that's already experiencing racism or experiencing that bias or discrimination. That's what I would say. That's, that's a really important point, I think, Michelle. Um, Nick, Touching back to what you were talking about, you made me think about, I've been doing a lot of work in duo ethnography and just trying to disrupt my own assumptions and my own meta narratives and figure out how I can live this life better. And I think one of the things I've been thinking about is that I think I can use the principles behind duo ethnography because I study in leadership and I think a lot about school leadership. I think that I can use the principles in duo ethnography to move people together to help build empathy because it doesn't ask anybody to critique anybody else's perspective, but just to listen to the story as a way to know yourself better. So it leaves you without thinking about um, what am I going to say next or how am I going to counter that point? I'm just going to listen. And I've been so much more effective at listening to the stories because I come in with that perspective. So I'm trying to build the bridge to edit men to see how I might be able to change schools using that knowledge. Yeah, well, I, I, I you know, and my background in, in terms of my PhD was to work with the United Home Nation. They're the largest Franco-Indigenous community in Louisiana. And it really stemmed out of a question that my thesis director for my master's asked uh, Celia Brown. She's like, Nick, you know, in terms of the story I just shared with you, she's like, oh yeah, that's a great story. I mean, it's an important story, but how does that story recognize who you've displaced through your displacement or immigration to Canada? So how could you go back and revisit that story from that perspective in terms of thinking about how does one work to decolonize the ways in which one 
shares uh, colonial narratives, right? As 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 they've been told. So, um, working with United Home Nation, I was fortunate enough to um, do oral history with them. And actually, there was a really interesting project. And I wonder, if, in terms of high schools, and uh, for Catherine, what she, you know, at her school. I was really fortunate enough to work on an oral history education project. This was affiliated with Louisiana State University. It was part of a grad course where we did the actual oral history grad course in McKinley High School during the summer where the university and community got a grant to pay high school students to become oral historians where they collected the oral histories of the community. The students who were uh, African-American, they were, uh, and, and it was eight adolescent girls who were part of the team. I was partnered with two as a grad student. We actually, I was so lucky, we got to interview uh, their family members, people from the community on their participation in the civil rights movement and the Baton, Baton Rouge bus boycott uh, during 1953 in the free ride program. So I learned so much. They got the chance to learn how to do oral history research. It was embedded within the school and then they went on to then create uh, a, an exhibit within the school that the community could then come and visit. So I'm just wondering, like, are there similar projects at your school or are you working with students to kind of do that in terms of thinking whether it's duo ethnography or oral history to kind of try to open up, you know, spaces for different kinds of stories to be heard by your school community? I love that. I'm like, not yet. <laughs> but in some ways, yes, I think that one of the things that I'm really proud of at the school where I am currently is our commitment to really trying to connect what's happening inside of our school walls to what's happening in the community around us. We have this great location as an alternate education high school. We're right downtown in the sort of heart of our community. And we are working on connections with, for one example, we have an experience education course where students are having the opportunity to participate in land-based learning activities, to have community members um, in particular recently had a panel of Indigenous leaders from our community who work in a variety of different areas in our community come in and have a panel discussion with a group of our students to talk about what lead their leadership looks like in our community. And I think it's just, it's so nice for students to have the opportunity to not only learn about parts of our history, but then connect it into what does advocacy and agency look like in our community for these individuals who've taken up um, these challenges and conversations in our community. And it provides, I think, uh, you know, students can set their path and trajectory to see themselves in those roles in our community in the future especially because we're working with students who are high school age, who are young adults, and we want them to recognize that they have agency and a voice and can serve in the community in ways that are meaningful and important to them. So our experience ed program for sure is a way that we try to tackle some of that and, and promote those conversations with our students and experiences. Um, but yeah, I love what you were just talking about. I'm, I'm already thinking, oh, like, how do we take that forward? Yeah. Those, are, those are great. great. That's like, you're working on that plan, don't we, Catherine? Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, that's kind of like, uh, for me, that was like, uh, I would say a pivotal, a critical incident in my professional career, thanks to Patron Monroe Henry, who was the prof at the time, to kind of rethink how to think about story, but then also 
in terms of com community engagement. And then just snared, like, you know, to participate in the civil rights movement, it's these, the community standing up for, for their rights and, do, and, and drawing on different kind of civic strategies to disrupt, you know, we're talking about disruption, to disrupt these, uh, you know, the status quo, if you will, in terms of segregation in, in the South. Um, so I, and I think that helps me to think about uh, learning from that experience helps me to think about how uh, the school and the curriculum still here in Canada often works to and continues to segregate uh, students from the wider school community or, or colleagues from it um, or different uh, historical content is one example from the school curriculum. So it's trying to disrupt that, that for those forms of institutional segregation as well that still exist formally and informally. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine, well, I think we should back up and I think you should tell us about the demographics and the mission of your school a little bit, just so that we all understand um, who Prairie Hope High School is within um, the community. Sure. Uh, Prairie Hope High School is uh, the name that was recently bestowed upon our, our lovely school. We were prior to that Neelan off campus. So we were a um, satellite location under the umbrella of Neyland High School, and then recently became our own high school with our own name and our own logo, which is very special. And what we provide is a place where students who have possibly had disruptions to their educational experience, maybe they have had a child or they've been away from school for a little while or had you know, challenges with their attendance, or have been attending one of the other high schools and have recognized a need for a variety of reasons for a different type of setting. Um, we provide those second, third and fourth opportunities for students to work towards their high school diploma. So we have young adults here. We do have high school age under 18 as well. And we have an EAL program for um, young adults who are newcomers to Canada. And so I, as a person who, who has come from K to eight environment, where I taught and worked resource and was a VP for two years, to have come to this beautiful, flexible high school um, has been an amazing experience for me, where I have come to a place where there are no bells, there are no, you know, disruptions in the form of traditional announcements. We have this lovely, quiet environment where students can come and go and work flexibly on an attendance plan that's going to work for them and move at their own pace within their program and their learning and receive one-on-one -on -one support from our teachers. It's been, it's been a beautiful experience for me to become part of this community. I hope that helps explain yeah, that's good. the, the that's place good. we feel here. I, you know, there's something to be said about uh, feeling that you're part of a community. And so if, if we're thinking about a, a school context or even not thinking about the school as a school, but thinking of it as a community. So to get away from the notion like, oh, I'm going to this building, it's a school and there's certain expectations that, I, and I've got to follow this, you know, this structured program. And as, as Catherine said, trying to kind of reconceptualize and, and, and look at the building, not necessarily as a school, but a hub for community to come to, where you're able to um, 
follow your passions, your desires to, to become the person that you would like to be and to contribute back to your communities, right? So to see that hub kind of as a resource. So I think that that works really important. And it's unfortunate, I think more and more. And when I watch my three boys going through it, they see school more as like, it's a, it's a passage. It's a, it's a passage that they have to do in order to get out there to the next phase of their life, as opposed to seeing it as a hub for community. And so, so if they're already seeing that and they have, you know, they have economic privileges and, and living in Ottawa and what they have access to, but they still see the school like that, then there's something quite problematic about, uh, see, you know, being the school being conceived as such, as opposed to being a hub for the community where it's there to serve the community as a whole, not just in terms of like education, like in schooling, but like education in terms of doing, you know, a center for research, even for uh, the youth that are going there or adults, like, like you had said. So I don't know how to get there, but that's for me, the why, why it's important to kind of rethink um, the, the role of, of schools or schooling and to kind of disrupt that and become more community hubs for the communities. I'm nodding away here, Nicholas. I love what you're saying about community. And I often refer to our school as a school community, Prairie Hope community, because we really need to, and I talk about our downtown community, because I want us to understand that our place in this isn't this separate place. It's a place that is connected to what is outside of it. And if we're doing, doing it right, what is outside of us is connected to us. And I think that when we do that work, then we see our school as part of something bigger in an interconnected way. And when we have those conversations as a staff, we also start to see our students as whole people. They come to us as whole people. And so when we think about Maslow and we think about Bloom and we think about working with our students to ensure that they are in that place where they feel safe to identify and to learn. Um, we need to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and look at our students as whole people and look at our place within a community. So I think all of that connection comes into play when we think about why this is important work. I, uh, I just wanted to say, I think those interconnections that you're mentioning between school and community are absolutely vital. There's some really good research around second generation immigrants feeling disillusioned that after, after they graduated high school, that inside their high school, they felt like Canada was this inclusive, multicultural place where everyone's voice counted. And then they left high school and started applying for jobs and realized that Canada wasn't quite so friendly and welcoming and hospitable that they thought. And this sort of this disillusionment of the second generation newcomers. Um, and so I think what you're saying about these connections between the inclusivity or the equity or the justice within a school needs to be reflected in the broader community. And I think that's why this work is so important that school and education can affect the broader community and the wider culture. And I think that's really important. So how do we engage the broader community? I think in our school, one of the things that we have done is we ensure that our student services staff in particular are building those connections out into our community. So having first name basis connections with um, food banks and shelters 
and employment agencies who help to serve youth in our community. Um, the Friendship Center, as we build those connections out and develop relationships where we invite folks in and where we bring our students, especially when we have restrictions at a different level where we can go out into our community and connect, help to um, also show students, and perhaps it addresses a little bit of what Michelle was talking about, when they leave us, all their supports don't disappear. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I mean, the link between community and school. So I, I, I would say one thing historically uh, with urban centers or, or even other schools in, in kind of smaller city centers is, you know, there's a transition in terms of the teachers that are there and live within the community and can afford to live within the community that serves the school, that the students might see them at the grocery store living in the community, for example, that they, they have that relationship maybe outside the school. Maybe not all teachers want that relationship with their students outside of school, but at least they can see you there. Their kids are participating in activities with other families and so, so on. Where, where today, I mean, to be able to afford to live in certain schools that are in transition in urban centers, you just can't afford as a teacher to buy a place. So you're commuting into the school, maybe living in a different community and not necessarily intermingling with the students. And again, I, I'm, I'm not advocating to say like teachers must be there, but what if a radical shift in rethinking the way in which the school structure is set up, even in terms of teacher workload, where community engagement is actually counted towards their, their overall workload and recognized as such in terms of the outreach and, and what they do and living in communities and getting involved with those different centers. So that would take rethinking what it means to be uh, a teacher, and I, I'm not saying that that didn't exist before, like at the turn of the century, lots of teachers were, were doing that engaged out in the community. But in terms of overall workload in relation to those kinds of expectations, how might we shift that mindset even to kind of recognize that, say, for example, in the pay structure and how we how teachers get engaged in the profession, maybe that might make a, a radical difference uh, for teachers and then also the school admin uh, doing that. So that, that, that potentially might be a different way of, of, of doing that. Um, that, that, you know, for, for several different reasons becomes more and more difficult with the kinds, kinds of structures that are in place. Yeah, it's interesting for me to hear you describe that narrative in terms of urban schools, because I know it as a rural school principal and um, just attracting staff that we could get to live in our community. You know, yeah. most of them wanted to commute from the city. Um, and yeah. that changes the way that the school um, is inhabits the community yeah. or this community inhabits yeah. the school. I was just going to say for 17 of my 28 years, um, I lived within a few blocks of two of the different schools I taught in. Well, you never have more trick-or-treaters than you do <laughs> when you live just a few blocks from the school where you teach. The connections that I made with families when they realized I maybe lived a block over from them, those were really special connections and that I was there for such a long time. I also think that you bring up another important or open the door on something else that I'm quite passionate about, which is inviting families into our school for non-academic, non, no agenda kind of reasons. Like some of the most successful events that we had in the last school I was in was if there was chili and bannock after school and board games out on the tables and your parents were just invited to come play some board games 
have a bowl of chili and some bannock and visit. It's so powerful and no, no academic discussion at all. It really invites our community and our, our most important stakeholders, our parents into our schools in ways that don't feel um, threatening or like there's an agenda attached to them. Yeah, it, it changes the it, it changes the relationship if the community sees it as a community uh, serving the community a community hub where they have as much input and uh, and uh, commitment to it or say in how it how, how you know the services it offers mm-hmm. that there's more uh, there's more relational openness to be there and and see it as part being part of the community as opposed to something that's like a a fort serving the community if you will. Last year, we hosted a free cycle, which is like a garage sale, but everything's free. We set up all these tables in our gym. This is obviously pre-COVID. Set up all these tables and just invited people to make donations. And then you just came with your family and you just took whatever suited you, what you needed. And I just remember this one girl, she was on her way out the door and she looked back and she said, "Miss McFarland, we got Christmas presents for every person in my family. We had Christmas trees and small appliances and jewelry and clothes and everything. And it was such a community builder and everybody had a smile on their face and nobody was worried that randomly somebody was going to sit you down and tell you how your child was struggling. And I think that sometimes we make that mistake. It's all well-intentioned, but we make the mistake that the only time sometimes that we really sit down across from a parent is when we're going to talk to them about something that can be difficult and and hurtful to a for a parent to hear. So the only other question that I think we have left is how do we bring those issues into the classroom and into the school and make them part of what we do in that space? Well I, I had mentioned the example of the oral history project. I, I think that you know that's kind of like a, an ongoing dream for me. I, I look forward to the day that I can participate with a, a school and the, set up a summer program where students transitioning to university, let's say grade 11, grade 12, or even say like at your school, Catherine, where they're coming back and, and they're, they want to get involved with the project, but get credit for it, that they're able to do that kind of work, like interview their, their members of their community, and then, you know, do the transcription, learn how to do the research, learn, learn how to do the write-up, all the various things that would be expected if they wanted to go on to college or university, or even just kind of work within their community after. Uh, it's still a dream of mine to try to set that project up. I've been thinking about it for like the last 10 years, and I just kind of wait. I know it's going to happen at some point, and I'm going to find partners and collaborators, and we're going to make, make it happen. But that uh, the potential students would also be able to work there in the summer as a summer job. So not only are they doing that, but they're getting paid in the summertime to then use those funds if they want to, to put towards uh, university or college, if that's the, the route they should cho- choose to do after. If you're interested in Manitoba, <laughs> I might know a great school for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I'm, I'm open. I'm, I'm open to partners. I'm just waiting for, I'm waiting for someone to invite me because I don't want to say, hey, I've got this great research project. We, no, it's got to come from the school community or the community itself. Mm-hmm. Well, don't change your contact information, Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I think just to, to add on to that in follow-up to that question about bringing current issues into our classroom, 
I think that as teachers, we just need to always challenge ourselves to disrupt some of our traditional ways of, of going about content delivery and to focus in on, on skills and, and stories that are authentically engaging, like what, what Nicholas was talking about, that I can really see how that would be so meaningful and, and would bring so much for the participants. And so I think that we just need to challenge some of those traditional ways of, of delivering content and instead focusing on skills that connect to the real world and the world outside of our school walls so that we continue to build community and, and build skills while we're at it. I, and I just add, I, I do see teachers uh, d doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. I just, uh, for example, with my, my middle son, and I, I've shared these stories before, but he's, he's been asked to do a few projects. One was uh, he had to create um, kind of like a, a cell phone with, with the different apps on it. And then he had to write different narratives that coincided with different apps through the characters of a book that they read. So they, so that was kind of neat where wow. they were trying to think through media literacy in terms of like, if you have a phone with these different apps and, and, and I mean, like some of the apps, like, cause he doesn't use Twitter. He doesn't really use Instagram. So he'd come see me. He was like, dad, I don't really understand Twitter. So like if, if this character, this is their background, how do you think they would use Twitter and able to do that? <laughs> so it was kind of neat. It was a neat, it was a neat take on a, on a project to get them to think about like, look, you got a phone, you have these different apps. How can you think of the characters in the book through your phone and these apps? So um, that was uh, a way of thinking about contemporary issues or their, you know, a device that they have on them uh, in a different way. So anything else before we sign off? Well, just thank you. I just want to, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you. And uh, I want to hear more about uh, Catherine's school and and what you're all, I just went and searched real quickly while you were talking and looked it up and I saw the name change and you had your first class graduate last June, was it, or? Yes, our first Prairie Hope graduation. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So I wanna hear more about the amazing work that you're doing at the school. So please make well, sure you thanks. stay in touch. Thank you. Yes, this has been a real pleasure. I was, I, I will acknowledge that I, that I Googled Nicholas before we got together today and, and I was pretty nervous going in, but this has been a real pleasure and it's always exciting to talk about our passions, right? To be invited to do that. So thank you. So Catherine, you told it, I had Catherine in as a guest speaker into my leadership class last week and she told a story that really um, sparked a lot of, um, discussion within my class about how you um, found student voice uh, within your LGBTQ2 community to help you with um, gender neutral washrooms. And I think that was an important piece about bringing um, the issues that were going on in the school and accessing student voice from marginalized groups that may not always have a voice. Like, I think the students in my class had a lot of questions about that. And then your answer was really, um, I think lots of them got it when mm. you talked about that. Would you just tell Michelle and Nick about that? Sure. Um, well, when I came to, uh, the school that I'm at now, what we had discovered, because we are in a, a space that is leased, we didn't have um, a separate universally accessible washroom, which obviously is the ideal in every school. And that's what we're all 
um, working towards, but because we're limited for space. Uh, I engaged in a conversation with our social worker asking her, you know, let's talk about this and what our options would be because we want to ensure obviously that every student feels that when it's, when they need to use the washroom, they feel comfortable about where they're walking into, that they feel safe and that they don't, um, th well, that they don't feel worried. And so what we ended up doing was having a conversation with a couple of our students, um, one of whom had expressed a concern about the washroom. And we said, okay, can you just talk to us about what you think we could do to help everybody feel comfortable in light of the fact that our space is limited and these are the washrooms that we have. So they helped us to design signage. They came up with the wording for the signage. We developed these um, stop signs that hang just on those command hooks. We put the command hooks on the washrooms. We've got signage outside where they, like I said, they came up with the wording. So it was, you know, use whichever bathroom works best for you. If you want the washroom to yourself, hang the stop sign on it. And we've got these magnets that we move over because of course there are COVID restrictions too, how many people can be in there at a time. And you move the magnets over, you hang the stop signs, you have the washroom to yourself. And everybody knows you stop if you see the stop sign and you just wait until the washroom's available. But I think what was powerful about that for them was being asked, how would you like this to work? What can we do in the meantime to make sure that you feel comfortable and safe because we know that for some members of our LGBTQ plus community, the washroom and using the washroom in any kind of public space can be an incredibly stressful situation. And we wanted to mitigate that to the best of our ability at the time. We also had a student then feel safe enough to later approach our social worker and say, okay, you know those little garbages that are inside the stalls in a woman's washroom? they should be in the other washroom too. And we're like, oh, of course they should be. Of course they should be. And, and I think the thing that I found the most awesome in that situation is once that was brought to my attention, I sent an email right away to our maintenance department and just said, can we get those little garbages inside the other washroom too? And I got a response that day. I'm setting aside those garbages and we'll bring them and we'll put them in next week no question as to why. And I thought that's awesome and that's progress. And to go back to those students and say, I sent the email and got a response today. Those are coming. I think really taught them something powerful about if you use your voice and you communicate and you state the need and, and then are patient about it or whatever, that, that things can happen. Maybe not every time and maybe not perfectly every time, but I think it was a really powerful lesson about voice. It was a big aha for many of the students in my class who were worried about um, when they asked students opinion, they were always getting the same students opinions and just mm. the sort of nudge that you should just ask the students that you need to know from, um, mm -hmm. I think was a good lesson for them. Anyway, I think that's all the time that we have. It's been a really yeah. great conversation. I'd like to say thank you, especially to Catherine and Nicholas for coming in and joining us. And I wish that we could just carry on and just plan out the whole research project. Um, <laughs> but maybe someday we can do that. Well, thanks.
Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Center, please visit our website at brandonu.ca forward slash BU cares, or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.